Well, I want to read a few verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 and following. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. In other words, they're dead. Many are sick, and many are dead. Well, we continue to look at the Lord's Supper in our series on the principles and parts of worship. And we want to hone in today on one aspect of our practice that we give clear evidence to. Over the last number of weeks, we've described what the Lord's Supper is, how the Lord's Supper is to be administered, and last week, how we are to benefit from the Lord's Supper that the Lord comes and feeds his people uh, through the Spirit as they uh, exercise faith when partaking of bread and wine. Well, this morning I want to consider the issue of preparation. And God willing, we'll be looking at that theme next week as well. Those of you familiar with our congregation know that we have a preparatory service ordinarily before we come to the Lord's table. And some of you may know that historically and even today in our churches in Scotland, it's common to have a communion season. And some of these stretch for five days. And each day has a particular theme related to preparation. So Thursday would be a day for humiliation and confessing of sin. Friday, uh, examining your heart for evidences of grace. Saturday, stirring up appetite to feed upon Christ in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Day being the communion day, and then Monday would be set apart for thanksgiving unto God. This was common in Presbyterian history, even here in North America. We're not saying that we're bound to have that number of services, but there are clear biblical principles that are observed in them. But what we can say is that the Bible clearly teaches the need for preparation and examination before we come to the table of the Lord. And we need to hear that today because we live in an instant culture, a culture in which you don't need to learn things or store up knowledge. You just type a question into Google. A day when you can have fast food of all varieties, a day when you can go online shopping, and if you want something, you don't even need to leave your home. It comes into your head, and with a click of a button, you have it. And as easily as you purchase it, you can dispose of it again. Well, the mindset of the instant culture also comes into the church, where Christians imagine that all they have to do is show up in a service, and blessing will be theirs. But that's very different to what the Bible teaches and to what our fathers in the faith have laid down for us. They understood that to spiritually profit from religious ordinances 
careful preparation was required and that that careful preparation would be rewarded because the Lord says, you reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you will of the spirit reap life everlasting. It's a very basic principle. Well, as an example of what they believed about preparation for the Lord's Supper, you could turn to our own larger catechism, where in three questions, the issue of preparation is taken up. Question and answer 171 asks, how are they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come unto it? Answer begins in this way. They that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are before they come to prepare themselves unto. And then it goes in to particular details of how you are to prepare. And God willing, we're going to take those up next week. But there's the principle outlined. How are they to prepare? They are to prepare. Then question and answer 175 deals with what we do after the Lord's Supper. And it asks, what is the duty of Christians after they have received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? And in that answer, we read this phrase. But if they find no present benefit, they are more exactly to review their preparation. They're to review their preparation to and carriage at the sacrament. In other words, if you don't profit from the Lord's Supper, you're to ask yourself after it, did I prepare? Because maybe you got out of it everything you put into it. Nothing. So there's a call both before and after to carefully consider the issue of preparation. But this is balanced with encouragement. Our preparation is in order that we come to the table of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat. Our preparation is not designed ultimately to keep us away from the table of the Lord. So question and answer 172 asks, May one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper? Part of that answer says, Because promises are made and this sacrament is appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians. He is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved. And so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. My point is this. It is apparent from these that in our theological tradition, there was clear emphasis upon thorough communion preparation. But yet that preparation has become uncommon today. In many Reformed churches, it is actually considered undue introspection and navel-gazing. So that preparation is reduced to this. You examine yourself, quite briefly, to see that there are no scandalous sins in your life. And any sins that you may be aware of, well, there's a prayer of confession of sin in the service. They're confessed in that. You can assure yourself of absolution and therefore on you go to the table of the Lord. That's common today. I want to make a case that preparation and examination in the Bible is more than this. And that it is designed to help you benefit from the supper. 
and that it presents a view of the Lord's Supper in which diligent preparation and intense participation will lead to you receiving great spiritual benefit. Now this is also linked to the question of frequency of the Lord's Supper, which I don't intend to address today, but God willing, we will as we move into October. But it is worth pointing out the connection. Is the Lord's Supper designed and do we benefit by more frequent but less intense participation? Or is the Lord's Supper designed and do we benefit with less frequent but more intense preparation? These are questions that follow from this whole biblical doctrine of preparation. Well, this morning I want to address some general principles of preparation that will help with the Lord's Supper and next time to consider practical ways that we can prepare. So first of all, we have preparation to meet with God. Preparation to meet with God. If you have a meeting with someone or uh, if you've got an event that is, it is important to you, it is instinctive that you prepare. And so you may have an important interview for work. You may have an invitation to a grand state banquet. Nobody needs to tell you to prepare. It's instinctive. Or if you want to benefit or to see something prosper in your life, the same principle is obvious to you. Many of you plant a garden. Well, what do you do? Do you just go out and chuck some seed down on unprepared ground? Of course you don't. You clear the weeds. You turn the soil. You enrich it with compost or some other feeding material. You know that if you don't prepare adequately, you're not going to succeed. And that's true across so many areas of your life. But these principles that are obvious in nature are also relevant to your spiritual life. And so you'll find God frequently calling his people to prepare to meet with him. And they, in turn, respond to those calls. Well, I want to open this up under six, God willing, brief subpoints to establish that preparation is clear. In the Bible. The first is this preparation is a general principle of communion with God. And you find it way back in the earliest periods of biblical history, like patriarchal period, the book of Job, Job chapter 11, verse 13 through 15. If thou prepare thine heart and stretch out thine hands toward him, if iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away. And let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. For then shalt thou lift up thy face without spot. Yea, thou shalt be steadfast and shalt not fear. Zophar says to Job, you understand, Job, there's a principle of preparation. You must prepare your heart. You're going to reach out your hands to God and seek him. Put iniquity out of your hand. Put sin out of your heart, your house. Then will you be able to lift up your face without spot, with a clear conscience unto God. You'll be steadfast. You'll not fear. The word prepare here means to stir yourself up to a determination. To put away sin. And then come unto the Lord with confidence. 
So it was understood in the patriarchal period. Secondly, it is a general requirement for the Sabbath. The fourth commandment is not, there's a Sabbath, keep it. But God says, remember the Sabbath day. Remember it because you're prone to forget it. If you're going to remember it, that means you need to bring it to mind. Therefore, to keep the Sabbath holy, you're going to have to wrestle with a principle of preparation. So even before the Ten Commandments were declared by God at Mount Sinai, every one of them, of course, existed prior to that. But if you turn to Exodus chapter 16, you'll see the Lord outlining this principle of preparation concerning manna. Exodus 16 verse 4 and verse 5. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. And it shall come to pass that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So God says to them, Go out on the day before the Sabbath and prepare for the Sabbath because you're not going out then and your practical preparation will be to bring in enough for two days so that you clear yourself to worship God on the Sabbath day. Preparation was to be made the day before so that you could profit. And then you come to the New Testament and you see that this day before the Sabbath is actually now given a name. Joseph of Arimathea wants the body of Jesus to bury it in his tomb. And he goes to request it. And we're told that it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Mark chapter 15, verse 42. It was given a name. It was called the preparation day. Now, some of this was practical preparation. But much of it was spiritual preparation. Because they knew they were coming the next day for a day of communion with God. And brethren, simply to apply this to you at this point, I would say this should be standard in your life and in your home. If you have any concept of what we're doing here today on the Lord's Day, this should be your standard Saturday. Preparation ought to be made. Indeed, we confess this in our own Westminster Confession, chapter 21, verse, or paragraph 8. This Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand. It's there. You ask, what do we believe as a church? Well, we believe the Bible. We believe the Bible teaches these things that are confessed in the Westminster Confession. We believe the Bible teaches preparation for the Lord's day. Thirdly, here, a specific example at Mount Sinai. Israel are called out of Egypt to worship God in the wilderness, Exodus chapter 3. And when they come to Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, verse 10, 
and 11, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Then verse 22, And let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. Moses is told to go to the people and set them apart for two days. Two days of preparation, and on the third, the Lord would come and meet with them. Likewise, the priests who were to function as intermediaries between God and the people were to sanctify and purify themselves. Then God would come and give his word. We looked at it a few weeks ago, Exodus chapter 24. They beheld the glory of God for six days. They offer sacrifices, and then they feast in the presence of this holy God. But before that, the Lord came and said, Two days, set yourselves apart, purify yourselves. The third day, the Lord is coming to meet with you. There was more particular preparation required for this specific covenant event. And that will be relevant to us later. But today as Israel, we draw near to God. And like the priests here, we are New Testament priests. And so if we're going to offer up our spiritual sacrifices of praise unto the Lord and prayer, it's required that we prepare to come with an impression of his glory upon our hearts and uprightness of life. So we have a specific example at Sinai. Then we have a duty required in the law. A duty required in the law. We can't look at it in detail this morning. But think of Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, when the Lord has actually struck Nadab and Abihu dead. He says this, I will be sanctified in them that draw near to me. It's a serious business. People died because they didn't worship properly. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. No, we read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. People died because they didn't worship properly in the church in Corinth. I will be sanctified in them that draw near to me. How would they sanctify the Lord? Well, one of the ways they would do this would, to be thought to, would be to follow the ritual prescriptions for purification in the Old Testament. They had to wash themselves at certain times in certain ways. And another way would be to prepare the sacrifices that they were going to bring to the sanctuary. These were practical things that, that, that obviously took time. And you don't have to do them today. You don't have to go through ritual washings of purification. You just put your clothes on, you jump in the car, and you come to worship. But imagine if you'd actually go out and get the lamb. Imagine if you had to, to lead the lamb to the temple. Imagine if you were to make the pilgrimage with the Lamb to Mount Zion. Do you see? The Lord is saying you have to purify yourselves. You have to prepare the sacrifices. 
well, we don't do these things practically in the New Testament church, but the spiritual principles still abide. They were appointed as little pictures to teach the infant church of the Old Testament, spiritual letters. And we are supposed to be the grown-up church of the New Testament, not to forget what we were taught as children, but to put them into practice without all of our little childish helps. It was a duty required in the law. And then it's a practice commanded in the prophets. You find commands and examples of this through the historical books and in the prophets. Take, for example, Joshua chapter 3, verse 5. The children of Israel are, are going to cross into the land of Canaan. What does God say? And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. It's very similar to Mount Sinai. Often the kings are commended or condemned in relation to this. Preparation of their hearts to seek the Lord. It doesn't just say seeking the Lord in outward form. You mark it when you read the kings. Good kings prepared their hearts to seek the Lord. Bad kings did not prepare their hearts to seek the Lord. Then when you come to the prophets, so many examples of this, like the one we began with this morning in our call to worship, Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 14 through 15. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 14 through 15. The people of God are to approach the Lord. God says, clear the way in verse 14. And she'll say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. That's who God dwells with. You need to work with your heart. You're naturally proud. You need to work with your heart to bring it into this frame. I dwell with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God says, prepare the way. Take out all of the stumbling blocks so that my people can come to me. But they need to come to me like this. One of the stumbling blocks is your own pride and lack of preparation. And then sickly here, we have a principle exemplified in the Psalms. It strikes me with amazement that the modern church doesn't think there's a lot of undue introspection in the Psalms. Maybe it does. I, I hope not. Navel-gazing. Well, that was called vital godliness in the Old Testament. Psalm 15, Psalm 24 ask a similar question about the person who will meet with God. We sang it earlier. Who shall ascend the hill of God? Who shall dwell in his holy place? The one whose hands are clean. The one whose heart is pure. Is that natural to you? Do you not need to deal with your hand? Do you not need to, to purify your life before God? Do you not need to go to Jesus and pray, Lord, forgive me for the sins of this day and that day? Have you got this all down? That you just get up in the morning and walk into the presence of God? Here I am. 
Ascending your holy hill, Lord. (coughs) Psalm 26 is another example where the psalmist brings his heart before God and he wants God to search him. Psalm 26, verse 2. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. He's preparing himself. Then, verse 6. I will wash my hands in innocency. So will I compass thine altar, O Lord. Somewhat detailed, but it is a, a brief tour through various parts of Scripture showing you that this principle is clearly taught. We see this general rule of careful and diligent preparation of the heart as a requirement of drawing near to meet with the Holy God. So that's the first thing, preparation to meet with God. Secondly, preparation for specific ordinances. So we're going from the general to the particular. Preparation for specific ordinances. We've looked at the general principle of preparation and noted that there was particular preparation, for example, at what took place at Mount Sinai. But we also see in Scripture that this was true of the observance of specific ordinances in the Old Testament, namely the feasts of the Lord and the Old Testament sacrament of the Passover. And so we want to spend time considering that for a moment, the Old Testament Passover. And for that, we need to go back to Exodus chapter 12. The Passover, as you know, was an annual commemoration of Israel's redemption. It wasn't that they were just to remember it one day per year. They were to remember it every day. They were to remember it every Sabbath. But God appointed an annual ritual commemoration of it. It was a seven-day feast that was to be kept with unleavened bread. Indeed, the feast was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in the days before this feast, all the leaven or the yeast was to be put out of the Israelite household. Listen to what we read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14 and 15. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. So imagine the Israelite going through his little primitive house and his primitive kitchen. If he had cupboards, he's opening them. And they're looking for any evidence of of leavened bread. In Jewish tradition, a candle was lit. And the house was searched with a candle on the night before the Passover to make sure that every every piece of leaven was put out of the household. You don't need me to tell you that that is preparation for the Passover, isn't it? But that wasn't the only thing that they were to do. They had preparation with respect to the leaven, and they also had preparation with respect to the lamb. The lamb had to be set apart. 
And it would be slain as a reminder that the Lord led his people out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. But look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. Speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day, mark that, in the tenth day of this month, they shall take unto them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for the house. The lamb was taken on the, on the tenth day. Now look at verse 6. And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall keep, kill it in the evening. Now, children, were you paying attention? What day were they to take the lamb and set it apart? The tenth day. What day were they to kill the lamb? The fourteenth day. What did they do with the lamb for those four days? Well, many of them brought the lamb into the house, tied it to the end of the bed. And for those four days, the lamb was set apart in the house while the people were removing the leaven from the house. Do you see the preparation that was involved? They're bringing the lamb in as they're casting the leaven out. Both of these things have tremendous spiritual significance. The Old Testament believer was being taught in that period of preparation that as leaven needed to be expelled from their home, so sin had to be cast out of their lives. And furthermore, they were taught that the lamb was central. In all of their preparation, the sacrifice of the lamb was their only hope. And the lamb was ever before them. It's the only way we can deal with our sins, brethren. There's no point looking into your heart and finding sin. You'll find a ton of it. What are you going to do with it? You have to look for the leaven while you're looking at the lamb. Four days before the Passover, the Jews were engaging in gospel preparation. Another thing that's true of the Passover is that the people had to ensure that they were ceremonially clean. Remember a few weeks ago we looked at Numbers chapter 9, the, the, the pillar of cloud guiding them through the wilderness. What, what were we taught in the first half of that chapter? It was the first year anniversary of the Passover, and they were to observe it for the first time. But there were some who had been made unclean by touching a dead body. Moses went to the Lord and said, what will we do? And the Lord says, okay, it's not their fault that they've touched this dead body, but they can't come to the Passover because they're ritually unclean. They need to step back for a month, purify themselves, and then they will come and keep the Passover in precisely the same way. What was the lesson? You need to be clean. You need to come through these processes of ritual purification. You find the same thing in the historical books, in the day, days of Hezekiah. Prepare the people. Make sure they're cleansed. Then come to the Passover. The days of Josiah as well. So for centuries, the people of God were taught 
to do physical things like remove leaven, separate a lamb, wash your bodies. But those physical things were aids to spiritual preparation so that they might participate in the feast of the Lord to maximum profit as they communed with God. So there was a general week in and week out preparation for the Sabbath, even for daily worship. But then there was a particular preparation for some ordinances, namely the Passover. Well, that brings us to the New Testament. The Old Testament Passover, the New Testament Supper. Christ instituted the Lord's Supper at the Passover. People say, show me, show me in the New Testament this principle of preparation for the Lord's Supper. There it is. What do you think Jesus and his disciples were doing? In fact, what does the New Testament tell us they were doing before they kept the Passover. Jesus says, go and prepare the place for us to keep the Passover. They're Jews. The days before the Passover, all these things would have been taking place. This process of preparation. And all that preparation being done, they keep the Passover and Jesus just flows straight in to the observance of the Lord's Supper. Do you see that there was extensive preparation performed before the first celebration of the Lord's Supper? And then we turn to our text that we looked at earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 29. And Paul confronts us with this truth again. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Paul says, examine yourself because you can partake unworthily and to do so has grave consequences. Now, some people want to limit this to what was going on at Corinth. We certainly must not overstate it. There was a particular abuse of the Lord's Supper going on at Corinth, they were coming to feed their bodies. They were drinking wine and getting drunk. Obviously, this ought to stop. But can we simply say, well, that was something for, Com for Corinth. They had to examine themselves because of the scandal that was going on in that church. Can we do that and then just sidestep this call of examination and preparation for the church today? Well, we can't because the wider scriptural principle that we've looked at and the particular preparation that was involved in the Passover and at the first observance of the Lord's Supper will not allow such a limitation. It's not enough for us to say, well, there's no evidence scandal in my life. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a drunkard. Therefore, I can just come and partake in profit from the table of the Lord. 
remember this specific preparation for specific ordinances. You go to Sinai. God says, two days, the third day, I'll meet with you. you. Come to the River Jordan. Joshua says, separate yourselves today. God's going to do great things tomorrow. You come to the Passover. Four days, set the lamb aside. Four days, get the, 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 the leaven out of your houses. Well, you must understand that the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of God's covenant. It's a sign and seal of God's covenant. And when you understand that, you will also understand that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the language is covenantal. This is the New Testament in my blood. What happens if you abuse the New Testament in my blood? You'll become guilty of it. And I'll judge you for it. And I have judged some of you for it. There are blessings to be received here. We looked at them last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Glorious blessings. You're coming to feast and fellowship with Jesus Christ. But there are also curses. Do you see that phrase, guilty of the body and blood of the Lord? Does the contemporary church even begin to ponder that? You know, it's found in, in one other place in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10. He that despised Moses' law died at the mouth of two or three witnesses. Of how much sorter punishment shall he be count, will he be counted worthy? Who tramples underfoot the blood of Christ and considers Christ's blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. You can eat and drink unworthily. You can be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. You can drink judgment or damnation to yourself. You can become physically sick or even die as a result of abusing this ordinance. So says the word of God. Is it any wonder that preparation and examination is commanded here in a way that it is not so particularly appointed in other ordinances. Why? Because of the greatness of the blessings and because of the greatness of the curses. You see, when I preach the Word of God, I preach it like a scattered gun, indiscriminately to everyone who hears. Now, that's a great blessing. The preaching of the word can be a savor of life unto life to you or a savor of death unto death. It is never neutral. But at the Lord's Supper, something more intimate is going on. God separates his people from the masses who hear the word of God. And he brings them to the table. And he seals particular covenant promises to particular people. 
And he says, come and you will participate in my flesh and blood through faith by the Spirit at this table. You will fellowship in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But you need to be careful. So as the Old Testament believer was taught through rituals to prepare themselves for specific ordinances, we are taught the same things. That specific rites of the Old Testament have gone, but the spiritual principles remain. Diligent preparation to meet with God. Now, God is infinitely gracious. He doesn't invite perfect people to the Lord's table. He invites sinners. Sinners who are making use of his son and coming unto God, confessing their sins, believing on Jesus. God is infinitely gracious and fellowship with him is a wonder. And our preparation for coming to meet with him is not meritorious. But God still requires things of you. And as you give yourself to them carefully and intensively, you're going to be prepared to meet with him and profit from the ordinance because you reap what you sow. I think we all understand that. Thirdly and finally, we've had preparation to meet with God and preparations for for specific ordinances. But thirdly, preparation for eternity. We've gone from general to particular, and now we're back to the most general of all. In the words of the prophet Amos, as he came to the people of God in the Old Testament, and he commanded them, prepare to meet thy God. Every single one of you here today is under that command. Every single one of you today is going to meet with God. And your whole life is a preparation for that day. Just as the whole of time is a preparation and anti-room for eternity, your life is a preparation for that day. Remember what we considered last Lord's Day in the afternoon, the vision of John, Revelation chapter 21, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Listen, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What did he see? He saw a prepared bride for her husband, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. A church that he saved by his blood. A church that he kept in the world. A church that he purified and sanctified. And prepared unto this great and glorious day. And then John saw something else. He saw all those whose names were not written in the book of life being cast into the lake of fire. The fearful and the unbelieving together with the abominable. But each of these two classes of people did something in this world that determined their destiny in the next. They prepared. And as you sit here this morning, you are either preparing for heaven or you are preparing for hell. 
Jesus taught us a parable of ten virgins, and all ten thought they were preparing for the coming of the bridegroom. But at midnight, when the bridegroom came, only five of the virgins had oil in their lamps. What was the problem, children? They didn't prepare to meet God. So as we close, I want to ask a number of questions and apply the things that we've learned. The first question is very simple. Are you prepared for eternity? Or are you walking through life careless of your spiritual needs? You might be a Christian and you know you aren't. All this talk about the Lord's table is irrelevant to you because you've no intention whatsoever of coming to that table. Well, the Lord's people will come and testify that they are his, but you are testifying of something also. You are saying to yourself and to the world, I'm not his. And while they testify of a hope of heaven, you're testifying that you're going to hell. You're saying, I'm preparing right now for my everlasting destruction. Oh, in Christ's name this morning, I beg you to prepare to meet with God. Come to Jesus Christ. Then come to the table and meet with Jesus Christ. But come to Jesus Christ. Secondly, do you prepare for worship in general? We have the Lord's Supper in a few weeks, but we have worship here three times a week. And on each occasion, you can't simply turn up to the service and, and expect to profit. There has to be weekly preparation for the Lord's Day. The day before should be your preparation. American Presbyterian William Plummer, he wrote a book called The Earnest Hours. And it was talking about the use of the hours on the Saturday evening in preparation of coming to worship God on the Lord's Day. Do you prepare for worship in general? Thirdly, do you understand that preparation is required for the Lord's table in particular? I hope this sermon and the one next week will be a help to that. But over the next few weeks, you should be examining your heart. You should be putting sin out of your life and stirring up an appetite for Christ. You should have these two Old Testament emblems in your mind. The leaven and the lamb. The leaven must be brought out and the lamb must be brought in. Fourthly, do you understand that preparation for worship and preparation for the Lord's table is preparation for eternity? Just as the whole of your life is preparatory for death, your religious life, your life in the church of Jesus Christ is preparatory for that great day that John saw when he saw holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from God out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. How did she prepare herself? 
by coming to the means of grace in this world, by worshipping God, by sitting at the table of the Lord. So when you and I obey the command of Christ, this do in remembrance of me, and we sit down at the Lord's table, do you know what it is in essence? It's like a dress rehearsal for sitting down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Therefore, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Let's stand as we call upon God in prayer.